Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Too often, millennials get a bad rap. Supposedly, they are entitled, don't know how to work, are narcissists, and basically, the me generation. Maybe some are. But isn't that true of every generation? In many communities, millennials are using their passion and creativity to shake up the status quo. They're entrepreneurs, more aware of social issues, highly educated, more inclusive, independent thinkers, and have their priorities straight. Today's guest is all of this and so much more. Rhiannon Chester is a Detroit native. She is, in her own words, unapologetically black, unapologetically a lesbian, unapologetically a feminist, and unapologetically the person who is concerned about all of her communities. She's passionate about connecting people to resources, whether it's funds, information, or other people. Much of her background is in the community, organizing and doing outreach. As program coordinator with LGBT Detroit, she connected people to information and brought resources to the organization's programs. She facilitated a weekly discussion called Talk Tuesday, a monthly conversation called Woman to Woman, and helped manage the LGBT Detroit Leadership Academy program. In reflecting on her years at LGBT Detroit, Chester says that experience provided her a space where she could be unapologetically all of herself, and it was a space where her concerns were not only listened to, but uplifted. She earned her Master's in Social Justice in 2016 from Marygrove College. She actively combines her undergraduate degree in photography with her social justice passion to increase the visibility of the often unheard. Inspired by the will, spirit, and innovation of the residents of Detroit, she's committed to working with often marginalized communities towards sustainable change. She took her passion for connecting people, community, and resources to IOB, IOB helps neighborhoods grow and implement great ideals one block at a time by using crowds resourcing platforms to connect leaders with funding and support to make neighborhoods safer, greener, more livable, and more fun. The organization has five principles. Local is best. Small is big. Inclusivity is key. 
were whole people and learn, experiment, share. A member of IOB's city action team as a Detroit action strategist, Rian works closely with marginalized LGBT communities and other communities that are marginalized in Detroit and metro area. She's been an advocate for inclusive public policy, the end of workplace discrimination, and visibility of marginalized identities. Whether participating on a panel locally or nationally, leading workshops to bring people and resources together, or capturing images of life, love, and community through her photography, you can count on one thing. This new homeowner will forever be unapologetically herself. Rihanna, welcome to the show. I'm happy to have you. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, you know, um, it seems like I've watched you blossom and grow. I mean, you were always wise. You, you know, I mean, you are multi-talented. I mean, I've seen you capture faces that really talk about something in the community through your photography. You were in LGBT Detroit's lead academy at one point. I mean, that's when, before you began working there, correct? Yes. Yes, I was in the first class. What brought you to that class and your passion for social justice? Let's see. What brought me to the class? Um, What brought me to the class was being introduced to Curtis Lipscomb. Um, I have a friend that's a friend and mentor. She's many things to me. Um, But I was an undergrad, and I needed an honest critique of my photography and Maybe a little-known fact or a not-so-little-known fact about Curtis Lipscomb is that he uh, went to Parsons um, in Mm -hmm. New York, and so she thought that it would be a great idea that I met him and that he could critique my work. Um, And it was one of the first times I had gotten honest critique of my photography and just critique instead of criticism uh, and ways for me to grow. And so I appreciated that. I was like, who is this guy? (laughs) And so, um, yeah, so from there, when the Leadership Academy became, like, available, an email was sent out, and because I had filled out an information card, I got the email. My friend who introduced me to Curtis sent me the email, and then, like, a third person sent me the email, like, okay, universe, I get it. I should be in this class. (laughs) Um, And so that's what really led me to LGBT Detroit, to the Leadership Academy. Um, And from there, it just blossomed and grew, and I met amazing people that I'm still connected to today, and we support each other's work. You know, that's one thing that a lot of people don't know about Curtis, seeing that artistic part of him, that creative part that I could see where not only would he be able to give you an honest critique, but draw you in because I think that he's able to look at things on multiple dimensions, which I could see that the creative part of you would also be drawn to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was definitely drawn. I mean, 
just just the way he looked at my work and he could see my work for what I wanted it to be um, and what I was actually creating rather than um, just these people on on a flat surface. You know, the people that I was photographing, which I've all, always photographed people, um, were full and, and real <laughs> to him. And um, not everybody sees photography like that. Do you feel like, particularly when you were thinking about going into photography and you were doing that, you know, if you think about things like the Harlem Renaissance and there are other great African-American artists, and we often tell our stories through arts, and sometimes it can just be like, I mean, I was in Chicago, and this fellow had this one picture of someone who was from the Jim Crow era, but looking at the person's face and the setting told that whole story. Was that what you were mm-hmm. trying to do with some of your photography? Yeah, I don't think you can tell a whole story. I think that mm-hmm. you can I think that you can show humanity through images. And I think that when people say, Oh, you can see the whole story is that you're seeing people's humanity shine mm-hmm. through. Um mm-hmm. And, and because we don't generally get to see media in that way. And so it's like, oh, I'm seeing something bigger than like a snippet or bigger than something that's being sold to me. And so it feels like a, a whole story, but it's really just humanity. It's just a person that has, you know, a whole life and you're seeing a moment that is captured but it can never, one picture or a thousand pictures can never be, even though it speaks a thousand words, it can never be the whole story, I don't think. You know, I like the way that you put that when you talk about humanity, because I think of one of the pictures of yours that I brought, which was a picture of one of our trans sisters, and her smile, her joy, there was something that you were able to capture. And like you said, it's like, you know, often people particularly when we're talking about the LGBT community, want to look at us through a very stereotypical lens. And in mm-hmm. that picture, which, in fact, I had someone visiting me from out of town just this past week going, like, I want this picture. And I said, no, you cannot have it. <laughs> you know? But they, they was like, but, but, but that, that, that joy, that, that sort of, that fun, that, that, and that was really, like, really great that you were able to do that. Do you find, particularly in the LGBT community, it is important to be able to catch that humanity because often we are so stigmatized, so stereotyped? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, That's why I love doing it. It's like my tagline for my photography company that I'm launching is uh, visual humanity. And that's really my goal of my whole work is to restore humanity to the way that we see images of ourselves. So when you when you got this message from all parts of the universe that you were supposed to join the Lead Academy, d- did you feel, did you like sort of say, well, I'm going to put this on the back burner, this artistic part of me, and just sort of get into this social justice? How did that sort of flesh out? Hmm. Um, <laughs> no, you can't really put art- artistic. Uh, I couldn't put it on the back burner because, once you know, Curtis already knew that I was a photographer, so mm-hmm. um, 
he mm-hmm. he made space for that to flourish within the organization, within, you know, the space that we were doing the work. And at that time, when I started the Lead Academy, I was still an undergrad, so I was still fleshing out my own understanding of my artwork. Um, and I think that the Leadership Academy made me more unapologetic about what I wanted to focus my photography on. So you went from being one of the students to being a leader in it. You helped manage the program. What did you see? What did you learn from it that then you were able to pass on to each year as people came into, or what did you try to help develop in them? One thing, well, and it's interesting because it's not necessarily like this specific skill set, but I tried to remind the, the young folks who came through the program, and some people were probably older than me, so young adults we are. Um, <laughs> I tried to remind us that we have what we need. Um, so for to remind us that we have to look inside and like do an internal kind of process and assessment, um, but also use our resources. I think that's one thing that lacks often is like, because we're often as, like, African-Americans, as black folks, we're prideful people, you know, often we keep our struggles to ourselves, which is very understandable, you know, in a society that, you know, has not been forgiven or has not been merciful in a lot of cases. Um, We keep things, and I try to remind us to look at our network, look at our, look at our surrounding, look at our community um, as a place to go, you know, for resource, for information, for problem solving, for creation. Um, and that was, I think, my biggest thing that I wanted to pass around, um, the biggest, like, g- gem that I could drop is just, like, we have everything we need. We don't need to rely on outside sources, like, we can make things work. And I know that because, I mean, black folks are very, very resourceful people. (laughs) So it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, and so it's just like putting it together to, like, doing it for, you know, survival, we can start to do it so that we can thrive. I like that. You know, I think that we have a trademark on making a way out of no way. Um, you were saying how, you know, and you've done like the talk Tuesday and the woman to woman, and you were just saying how like some of the people who came through were older than were older than you, but here you were still leading it. And one of the things that I know about you is like you're very outspoken, you're very clear, and but you're also like thought provoking and, and able to lead people regardless of age. And I know I had. Um, talk to people who had gone to not only like uh, Talk Tuesday, but to woman to woman, and, to, and they were talking about either like it made them think about things, that there were ways that you would challenge, not really challenge them, you would just like put a question to them to where, like you said, why, what do we have? We've got it all right here. What can we do? How did you develop? I mean, I know that, and I know that you said that at LGBT Detroit, it allowed you to, to do that. One of the things that you came up with um, in partnership with um, 
I can't believe I'm blanking on her name. You know who I'm talking about. A woman to woman. Tashi Kelly. Thank you. I mean, I could see her face and everything, and I was blanking <laughs> on her name. Um, when you guys, I mean, decided, okay, you want to do woman to woman. And I can remember being there at one of those earlier ones, and it was like someone was there like, well, we're just there. Uh, Lady said something about to support uh, like, like these young women or something like that. And then, but it was like, no, it wasn't like you wanted, you pulled them in, you know, come sit around the table. We want you to be here. We want you to uh, be a part of this conversation and make it grow. That whole concept of woman to woman, how did you develop that? And then when you got ready to implement it, you know, mm. how did, how did you, and, I, and, that, and again, that's a, a hat tip to Curtis Lipscomb because often we have, you know, their board often has, I mean, I, I've known Curtis from when he started it, and that it's like, this is like being really inclusive and welcoming to giving this space to women. But how did you develop what you wanted to look like and then present it? Yeah, I mean, we, well, we definitely have to pay homage to uh, our sisters and our mentors that, that walked the path before us because we weren't the first. Um, we definitely took examples from Spice. Uh, we definitely took examples from Tiffany Buchanan, who um, mm-hmm. had launched Woman to Woman before Tashi and I were even walking around LGBT DJ. Um, oh, really? So, no, I didn't know that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so we definitely pay homage to those folks, you know, and they're still around. They're still doing amazing work uh, and being, like, beautiful people in the community. So um, it really started with a lack of visibility. Um, we saw an issue, and we wanted to solve it. And Curtis gave us free range and just, I mean, he literally was like, write me a proposal. And at that time, I was like, ooh, I've never written a proposal for a program. (laughs) And so he gave me the resource to write the Mm. proposal. He taught me how to write a proposal. I wrote the proposal. The board approved the budget. We had a program. How great is that? You know, it wasn't like, like, and it wasn't like, like, okay, well, yeah, you can go do it. It was like, you have to write a proposal. This is how you write the proposal and do that. I mean, so, again, and giving you skills to do this, mm-hmm. that is, that's invaluable because often, particularly, you know, some of us who are a little older, younger, you know, often, we, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to go like, oh, okay, well, you want to do it, go ahead, go ahead, do it, all of this, and not prepare that next generation with the tools and the skills to do that. And then also younger people after you can look and go like, well, she did that. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. you can talk about it. I, you know, I have um, met with, talked to and interviewed Dr. Debrea Watson, and she was saying that it was from attending a woman-to-woman meeting that made her do her one film because it was Mm -hmm. like she recognized the importance of telling those stories yeah how cool i mean that was just like like really really cool and like you said and right now i just learned something too because i had no idea that tiffany that that had been there before and then you came back and revisited and made it happen um is woman to woman are you still having those conversations and it's been a few years what shape is it what has it taken 
So, um, Woman to Woman is occurring monthly. I think it's on the third Friday of every month. I am no longer the facilitator. Uh, Tashi nor myself are no longer the facilitators. Now it's um, a masculine identified lesbian named Sharon Fletcher. So she has the reins, and she's doing an amazing job. Um, I just went to one of their mixers, and it was cool. I got to meet some new new lesbian and bi women that, you know, I hadn't met before and some I had and got to build some deeper friendships and connections with folks. So it is up and running and <laughs> new beautiful faces. Um, yeah, and there's a Facebook page, Woman to Woman, um, and, of course, anybody can contact LGBT Detroit. Um, to find out more information about when and where the next session will be. How did you feel about handing it off? To sort of like, like, this was your baby, and, you know, and, okay, well, here, and I have to put it in these hands, and it's going to be. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think, I think we have to all get comfortable with passing the torch. Mm-hmm. Um. I was in grad school, and I needed to focus, and it was just time. It was really time, and I just, you know, I let it, I let it be. Um, and Sharon picked it up and is doing an amazing job. Okay, well, we're going to take our first break right here. And um, if you're just joining us, I am speaking to Rihanna Chester, and for a very young woman, a huge background and social justice and movement building actually we will be right back this episode of collections by michelle brown is brought to you in partnership with the center for peace counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. We're back here on Collections with Michelle Brown. One of the things, you know, that was such a great turning, training ground and an organic growth for you to go from, like, you know, you're taking pictures, you want someone to critique it, he gives you some good advice, then you go into the academy, and then you become a big part of LGBT Detroit. In many ways, it was your other family. It helped you go from that undergrad with these ideals to grow into the woman that you are continually to evolve to be. You've been all over the, you well, in many places to D.C. You've spoken, you were recognized uh, by MBJC as one of the 100s to watch. Did you ever have like that moment where you kind of pinched yourself and said, well, wait a minute, I just wanted him to, to, to give me some honest feedback on my photography 
Oh, <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, I've definitely had those. I mean, I still have those moments. I mean, I I could have that moment over and over again uh, and just, like, remembering and reflecting and even just meeting people. I mean, when I, when people tell me that, you know, woman to woman was like church for them mm-hmm. or when people tell me that, like, you know, Talk Tuesday was their, like, favorite time of the week or, you know, or people just tell me, like, you know, in con- like, on Facebook, just like, you know, this one conversation I had with you that I remember, that they remember, I don't remember, mm-hmm. you know, really changed my life for this direction. It's a lot of, like, are you serious? Like, <laughs> kind of moments, like, really? Mm-hmm. I, and with Curtis, like, I entered the organization. I was young. I was in undergrad. I was very, like, insecure with my work and with myself, constantly being criticized in art school, um, and it was really a place that built me up. And, I mean, I think the biggest moment where I was like, are you, are you really serious? <laughs> is when mm-hmm. we were acknowledged, myself, John Trimble, and Marlon Collier were recognized by uh, the Obama administration as emerging LGBT leaders. And I was just like, I've only been in this organization for, like, six months. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I... And I mean, and I talk to Marlon sometimes about it. He's like, what did we do to deserve that? And we talk about it, and I just, you know, I think that, I think we are deserving people. Like, I'm not going to mm-hmm. say I don't deserve to be recognized because um, I do. You know, I, I've i been doing civil rights work and, you know, organizing work since I was in high school. So, um it wasn't like LGBT Detroit was my first, <laughs> you know. It, was, it wasn't your first it's, rodeo, huh? <laughs> right. It's, it's in mm-hmm. the line of things. And, you know, it was a place, it was definitely a launch pad, but it wasn't the first place, you know. So um, there are so many moments that I look back, even, you know, reflected on Dr. Debrea Watson and, like, her creating a whole, you know, documentary and, like, participating in that documentary and being featured on that documentary from a three-hour conversation that we had, you know, with community folks. So it's so many moments where I could, you know, I'm I'm grateful. (laughs) That's my hashtag grateful. That never, you know, like they say, it never gets old. I know, like, a couple years ago when Netroots Nation was in Detroit, and um, I had this thing where I was supposed to go and, you know, in the back with Biden was, and here's this guy who's a Secret Service, and he says, you know, I remember you at a, and you said, and I'm going like, okay, you know, he said, and it made me feel good about that I could live out and authentically, and look at me now, and I'm going, well, that's wonderful, and then somebody said, who is this? I don't know, you know, and, and you know, so it, that never gets old, that never gets old, you always will be pinching yourself. Trust me, as the years go on, you'll keep back, and one day you'll sit back and you'll go like, well, I guess this was kind of amazing, (laughs) yeah? But but I think that the good thing, too, is that, like I said, you know, you hear so many people – when that when you hear that whole millennial things, often people don't think of young African American people who are millennials. But it's a different thing that part that you, that you have. You've got that passion, but 
one of the things they talk about millennials, well, you know that they're all into technology and all like that. And yes, you do. But you are bringing all of this innovation mm-hmm. to community building. Secondly, yeah, I mean, you know, really. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with it. Um, they're doing it. Now, you were with, you were decided to go back to school while you were still with LGBT Detroit, right? And that was, I mean, you know, I think it's challenging for anybody to go back to school, but you went into a really intensive program there at Mary Grove. Um, I know that recently they announced that Mary Grove was going to stop their undergraduate program. Is the program that you were a part of, is that going to continue? Yes, the uh, graduate master's in social justice program will continue. The undergraduate programs will cease, which is unfortunate and sad. So when you did you what did you get that same kind of lightning bolt from the universe that this is the program you're supposed to be into, or as you were thinking about going back to school, did you say, you know, I want to study so go on and learn more about social justice, and what when you went into a structured sort of academic uh, study of social justice, did you learn that changed? what you had learned hands-on there at LGBT Detroit? Hmm. Uh, I don't think I had the same strike from the universe. Uh, I questioned graduate school. I questioned programs. I considered moving to California. I considered moving to Canada. Um, mm-hmm. to go to different art programs and art therapy programs and should I go into social work or should I go into social justice or because social justice was a fairly new program. I think um, I think the oldest social justice, like master's degree is like 50 years old. So in the world of academia, uh, social justice is fairly new. And so I was pretty skeptical if um, – it would be applicable in the real world uh, as, you know, something that could lend itself to my career path. Um, But I met, I was very skeptical. So I, I I mean, like most things I'm interested in, I stalked the website. Mm -hmm. I read Mm -hmm. through all the curriculum and it was the curriculum that kind of sparked my interest and I was like, hmm. I was like, half of these books are on my Amazon wish list. Mm. <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. this would give me an opportunity to buy them. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but also I met with the program, the master's, the master's in social justice like program director, and we were set to have like a 45-minute meeting, and we ended up talking for an hour and a half, almost two mm-hmm. hours. And that mm-hmm. was what sold me. And she was like, you should probably go home and fill out your application. And I did. I did. I went and filled out my application because talking to her and, like, having someone who understood my vision and who I felt like could um, be a mentor to my vision um, mm-hmm. was really a big selling point for me. So... And, and it was it was different. Um, I think the biggest 
see, I think, you know, the reason why I moved from some of the other organizing I was doing before LGBT Detroit into LGBT, LGBT Detroit was because it was broader than the silo area I was in. And I think moving into the social justice program gave me a, a global view of, you know, you know some things are happening, you know, you know, about colonization, you know, about, you know, climate change. Uh, but it just gave me a very in-depth view of issues that I only had a little bit of knowledge about um, and exposed me to experts locally, nationally, internationally um, that could speak to these other issues that intersected, you know, my life and intersects all of our lives, especially when it comes to, like, environmental stuff. So that was that was the biggest shift um, and change. And now, you know, being post-grad, like, being done with school, you know, I support my cohorts because we went through as one class. I support their work. Some of them are working in climate change, you know, environmental justice work. Some of them are working in, like, reforming the criminal justice system. And so we find ways to support uh, across across um, across topics, across social justice issues, um, and understanding more about immigrant rights and things like that. So we get to support across the spectrum. Now, you know, you went there, and like you said, you said that you heard more about other issues. But isn't there... And even though you heard about things that were happening all over, but isn't there something unique about Detroit? Like Detroit is in many ways ground zero for good, for bad, for innovation, for creativity, for mm-hmm. critical thought. Do you think that, that you wouldn't have got it if you went somewhere else? You know, I don't know what I would have got if I got somewhere else, <laughs> if I've gone mm-hmm. somewhere else. I definitely think that Detroit is ground zero. I used to tell people that in high school, I was 16 years old telling people all eyes on Detroit and Mm -hmm. people thought I was crazy. (laughs) Um, Because the, the, what they did to our public school system was a pilot for the nation. And so, you know, but um yeah, yeah, I definitely think Grounds Detroit is is the place. is 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 the place for innovation. It's the place for response. It's the place for you know experimentation, uh, whether that's positive or negative. Um, yeah, um, I think you know. I, I mean, I'm a Detroiter, so I think Detroit is like everything. Well, it is. (laughs) But it is. You know, I find it it interesting when I looked at that one of your current coworkers is Joe Rashid. And Joe and his sister Ann and everything did Detroit Summer with us and had an Mm -hmm. opportunity to work with James and Grace Potts and with everyone then when – Back then when we were doing it, we were saying, but Detroit is the place. And, you know, and here to see both of you with that – there working at this, you know, together. I mean, it's just like, hey, of course they're going to work together. Um, you know, um, you are unapologetically who you are. And 
you stand boldly in your truth. When you left LGBT Detroit, and even going into the to the the program at Mary Grove, but then even when you you left it completely and went to your new position at IOB. IOB in our backyard. Yeah, <laughs> oh, in our backyard. Okay, that makes sense. Oh, you know what? I'm th- of course it makes sense because I'm thinking like NIMBY, not in my backyard, but IOB exactly. okay, in our backyard. Okay, <laughs> when you when you left almost like a very nurturing cocoon, okay, of where you could mm-hmm. be unapologi- unapologetically black, a lesbian, a feminist, and go out into this other world. Was there a culture shock? I was nervous. I was, I, 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 um, I was very nervous. I honestly, admittedly, uh, nervous because I was in a place where I knew every part of me was affirmed and cultivated and loved on and, you know, um, and it was kind of like, you know, the nest. Um, And so I was nervous to leave, but I knew that I had, I had this community that I could tap on, but I also knew that I had like an inner strength because like I said before, that's not where I started. Um, But to go, you know, to, go through a process of not being affirmed and, you know, feeling very insecure about your sexuality and your body and all of these things, you know, uh, skin color, everything, to go into a space where all of that's built up. I knew I had a foundation, and so I knew I could stand wherever I went. And so I was nervous, yes, but I don't think it was a culture shock because I knew it existed already. Um, Mm -hmm. Um, I was grateful to find IOB and to find an organization that has um, organizational principles that align with my personal principles. Mm -hmm. I was very, very grateful. But I recognize that that's not the norm, and I would have, you know, been prepared to navigate whatever came my way. Okay, although you are all of these things, well, did you have any concern that, you know, that they would put you in that niche and say, okay, well, you go work with the gay people? Because particularly in Detroit, what's beautiful about Detroit is we don't have, like, this one little gay neighborhood. We are everywhere, <laughs> and we are doing everything. So in any backyard, you are going to have LGBTQ immigrant you know, hipster, everything that are mm-hmm. going to be innovative. Did you have that that concern? And did you ever have to say, hey, you know what? I am all of this? Nope. I mean, I think the, the founders and the people that work at IOB understand uh, whether they have the language or not intersectionality um, and recognize that, you know, people we can walk walk many lines and work with many uh, different kinds of people. And so the expectation was that I knew how to work with anyone who came my way um, or learned how to work with people in Detroit. Um, Because what IOBI did, because they're not based in, they're not originally based in Detroit, um, it started in Brooklyn, New York. Um, 
was they did a year of research before they opened an office in Detroit. And so they intentionally hired Detroiters because mm-hmm. we know our backyard. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so they, they gave that to us. Like, you know who to reach out to. You know who to talk to. Um, you know your people. So I'm not going to categorize you or try to put you with a certain group of people, you know, uh, and – I presented myself, you know, as I am. I have a wide range of networks uh, that I, you know, have entry and access to in the city. And so I presented that. And it's not just LGBT folks. It's not just black folks. It's not just, you know, immigrants. It's not just, you know, people who I I have shared identity with. So, um, yeah, they were like, great. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the – you know, one of the things, too, and that's the people outside of Detroit recognize, you know, like, like you are doing it. But then you also hear, and I think that what you're doing, I often tell people about the things that you're doing because sometimes, like, I was in, in other cities, and they'll be talking about only downtown, midtown, uh, the gentrification. And I said, you know what, but there's a whole lot going on in the neighborhoods and communities, you know, and how do you make that happen to help, you know, I mean, because really I know that there's a lot of people, I know someone who said, I was thinking about it, but I don't think there'd be any place for me in Detroit because you have to be down in Midtown. I'm going, no, there's a lot it's going a on. And <laughs> exactly, you know, um, I was looking at the the IOB uh, um, website, and there's all kinds of projects that you are you guys are working on. So, what are your your favorite projects that you've seen My while you've been there? Favorites in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. What are my favorites? Um, Some of them have passed already. Uh, Piper Carter did a project, um, and I wasn't able to attend, unfortunately, but I know that it's always amazing. I've, you know, gone to 5E Gallery, and, you know, we found hip-hop events, so I know that the events she puts on are amazing. Um, But she did, like, uh, Dilla Youth Day, where she did STEAM programming uh, centered around hip-hop music for young mm-hmm. folks. And I always think it's amazing to to use these, like, multiple forms of media and multiple forms of, like, thinking and doing and practicing and being uh, to teach people things because I think, you know, we can learn in a lot of different ways. And so mm-hmm. that was – I think that was a really cool project. Um, uh, a small project that I think has a big impact was ran by one of my classmates, Brooke Harris, and her sister um, with Hollaback Detroit, and they did um, a campaign to raise money for, like, stencils and spray chalk to put up anti-street harassment um, messages around the city because street harassment is a big issue that people are not often talking about. Um, So I think those are two that I really liked. Um, But I love all of our (laughs) IOB. So I I think that, you know, people across this city are doing amazing things. Um, And it's really about highlighting 
the work that's happening. Um, and, you know, and it takes time. You know, we have a lot of people in the pipeline that are building up um, and planning because we preach planning. Like, you have to plan, mm-hmm. you have to plan. Um, you know, and, and so I love to see, like, people just get it active in their neighborhoods. Like, it's it's the Detroit that I remember as a child. So that's what I like to see. You know, and I know that you're doing workshops. And one of the things that I like about it is like how you're talking about, you know, because ways that you do it and um, ways that you're, like you said, planning, you have to have a plan. Um, how do you do uh, crowdfunding to get it? So do you cover like every aspect from when someone comes up with a project and they have an idea, do you cover everything from like how they're going to everything like marketing to crowdfunding to um, sustainability? Yeah, we we try to. You know, um, some projects are one-offs. You know, some projects are one-time projects. But or some projects are phases. So it depends on the project. It depends on the leader. But we definitely cover everything from building, you know, building your campaign page to how do you, like, make the ads. You need to build a team, you know, to make sure that you're not the only person doing the fundraising. Um, You have to build a, a story, you know. How are you telling your story um, to the public? Um, we go over how to use social media uh, because people often think that they can put their their crowdfunding campaign, their ROB campaign, whatever platform they use, put it up on social media, and because they put it on their Facebook, because they put it on their Twitter, that the money will flow in. And in most <laughs> cases, that's not true. Um, you have to make you have to you know make the ask. The number one reason why people give is because they're asked. So. You you definitely we definitely have to go over that with people because I mean and that's not like a far off thought because the times that we do hear about crowdfunding is when we hear about it on the media you know when we hear that mm-hmm. somebody's page is like blown up and gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars but how I try to explain that to people is. Think about how many times a day, think about how many platforms exist. Think about how many times a day people post on those platforms. And then think about how many times a day you hear on the news about a campaign. Mm -hmm. So you have to get the word out. Uh, And we really, I mean, it goes back to what I tried to, you know, impart to people who um, were in the Leadership Academy is that you have to look at your own network and see what resources you have because not everybody's going to be able to give financial. But, I, you know, Dr. Truman Hudson taught me that there are different types of capital. We have financial capital. We have social capital. We have, uh, you know, it's people, it's money, it's time, and it's different forms of capital. Um, and we have to – know when and where to use those. And so I try to help people think about those things. You know, do you have to, you know, a lot of people, if you say, oh, we're going to do crowdfunding, people go like, oh, that's that GoFundMe place, and then they go to everyone, well, you know, I'm not paying for nobody's wedding or this or that. Do you have to help them understand how to present that 
you know, understand how it works and then how to present that to their network and to use to recognize the network because often you don't realize what your network is. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, well, first, IOB has uh, eligibility criteria. Um, because we're a national nonprofit, no one can raise private funds. So you can't raise money for your wedding um, or for tragedies <laughs> or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It has to be something that has a social good component. It has to be for the community. Um, so that's the criteria. So I don't really have to tell people how to market the wedding crowdfunding page. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But I definitely um, do try to get them to figure out how they're going to deliver their message about because, – because the reality is, is if people are raising money on IOB, it's probably something that they're passionate about. You know, when someone's raising money to build a pocket park for kids in southwest Detroit – you know, in, in abandoned or vacant lots. You know, that's mm-hmm. passion. That's not like, mm-hmm. that's not my nine to five. That's not, you know, something I have to do. I know that I have kids or there are kids in my neighborhood that need somewhere to, to like, play. And it's because people care about other people. And so sometimes we can let fear get in in front of the passion. And so I try to redirect people to let passion lead. Um Mm-hmm. And so that's really what I try to do. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to ready to take our second break right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And we will be right back in a very few moments. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. You know, we are, you know, one of the things is that you talk about being unapologetically black. And I guess I would be very remiss if I did not ask you about Imara Mahalimu, your African name, which, you know, we've already discovered. It seems like most of the people I know who are from Detroit who have another name, it was given to them by uh, Dr. Kofi Adoma, and what does that mean to you to have that identity? I mean, Dr. Kofi is amazing, one, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it was an honor to have have Dr. Kofi name me in the LGBT Kwanzaa naming ceremony. Um, I think that the LGBT Kwanzaa in Detroit is a sacred space, Um for us to be 
unapologetically black and unapologetically African-centered, unapologetically LGBTQ folks um, that want to celebrate our our heritage and our lineage, um, known or unknown. So um, I think it's a sacred process, and I've always um, and still want to know what I'm connected to um, pre, you know, my folks being captured and brought here, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know my family history um, before my, I think, great-great-grandmother on my mother's side. So it's a lot that I don't know. Um, and I truly believe that, like, you have to know where you've been to know where you're going. Um And I believe in Sankofa. Like, I believe in these, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, principles. So so to have Dr. Kofi name me was an honor. Um, I didn't choose my name. Uh, Dr. Kofi meditated and prayed and Mm -hmm. uh, came to my name. And it is Imara Mwalamu, which Imara means... uh, strong and determined, one who is strong mm. and determined. And Mualamu means teacher in the village or teacher, mm. yeah, teacher in the village. So strong and determined teacher in the village. That is my name. And that is you. Have you ever thought like maybe somewhere in the future of taking these skills not only like what you got through the Leadership Academy, but what you're doing now and visiting other people in the diaspora, maybe in the Caribbean and Africa, uh, and and doing that, doing the same type of of training, empowering, um, developing. Yeah. I, well. Yes and no. Um, I have definitely considered. I definitely, let me me rewind that. I have definite plans to take my work uh, global. Um, Mm -hmm. And I haven't considered the the crowdfunding or, you know, the other trainings that I've experienced. Um, My plan is to take my photography work um global i would love to capture um women of the diaspora and you know i'll have to do a photo shoot with you so you could understand the way that i do photo shoots i don't mm-hmm. i don't really pose people but uh i think the process of getting at someone's humanity is to have a conversation with them and that's what i do um in my in my photo sessions, so uh, for my graduate program, my graduate project, uh, we had to do a, a project to culminate our graduate experience. I did. I interviewed eight black women, uh, a few who are immigrant women, um, about their self image how they feel their self-image was constructed in the role of media um, and really trying to tease as I develop it more, I want to really examine the resilience 
uh, and creativity of black women, like across the spectrum, across the diaspora, um, that is in resistance and response, but also um, in our own just like magic and manifestation of ourselves. Like what does it look like to manifest yourself um, when you have like media and culture that is telling you that everything that looks like you is the is the opposite of what's beautiful. Um, and so I'm developing that work and planning to take that work larger and bigger, and that is the work that I would love to take across the diaspora. Um, and, you know, maybe crowdfunding and other things come along with that, but um, – that's the that's my passion project. <laughs> that's the thing that I'm most passionate about is really exploring our beauty and how we express our beauty and strength mm-hmm. and creativity and resilience um, and how we express it, but also how we cult- or cultivate it um, because I don't think people ask us that. Like, people see it and they're like, man, she fly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, it's a process of cultivating yourself um, and cultivating yourself, cultivating yourself unapologetically. So I'm interested in that process. And I think when I do that work, you know, I get emotional every time I do a photo shoot and I talk mm-hmm. to them and I get really like emotional because mostly they like ask me like, why are you doing this? And I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I just think that, you know, it's a lot of beauty in, in, in our struggle and we don't, and we find a way to, like, make ourselves not look like we've been through a struggle. <laughs> you know, when, when I listen to you talk, I think of two things. First of all, I think of the Estrella Foundation, which is doing the Estrella Lesbian Foundation, which is doing a lot of work globally, particularly in areas where it is predominantly communities of color, doing projects that um, – range from everything from what you're talking about on and like and building community do that. But I also think that, you know, when I was thinking about and I said what you were your crowdfunding and everything, once I was in South America, actually I was in Colombia and I was working with a woman who was a social worker who took me into a community of women and um in talking about the things how as you lift up women, you lift up the entire community and how there were things, even though they are like, uh, it was okay to be gay, but they were still, you didn't want to be that out here and out there, even to talk about issues of like they have legalized prostitution, but what that meant to women and how, even though it was legalized, how in some ways without a shift in mind, it made all women at risk. I mean, so it was like I could see like a lot of what you're doing and talking with people particularly. And it was also really nice to be in a a place where everybody there was brown, some shade of brown, you know, and to Mm -hmm. talk to to people who looked like me. They spoke a different language. But it was like so when one of them came and visited me that we went and looked at here, you know, like there is an interconnectivity. So, I mean, at one point in time, you know, I, I expect to see you up there on the UN stage 
where where that would go with you because of of where you're thinking. And, you know, I think that you have a lot of work to do here, but you are such a treasure. I think that you're supposed to do it. Everybody should know about you. But then I'm a little biased. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So I have a question that I tend to ask everyone. Most of them people go like, I don't believe you're asking this Um, in your life. From that, that, that young girl in Detroit who went to public school, who studied photography, grew up in, in LGBT Detroit, now you're doing community work, you start and come to see social justice. I mean, we all talk about intersections, and I mean, they're real. Sometimes we don't recognize them. How do you feel that the intersections that have influenced your life have impacted the directions you've taken, and how do you think it's going to impact your future work? Yeah, I I mean, so I do intersectionality trainings, mm-hmm. um, and so I always say intersectionality is my jam. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but But, you know, my intersections have, I mean, the definition that Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, developed is, is something that we all experience. You know, it, it's not, I've had many a days where I didn't know if, I didn't know why my life was happening the way it was happening. You know, I've had my dark days. You know, I've, I'm in a place now where I can look back and, you know, and hug you know, young Rihanna, you know, and hug baby Rihanna and tell her, like, you know, and reach back into myself and say, like, you know, those things taught you what you needed to know to be the woman that you are today. Um, I don't regret my experiences. Um, All of them have not been great. Um, Some of them have been traumatizing. But trauma, the trauma that I've experienced I, I use those experiences as ways to not only create healing for myself, but to examine how to uh, um, catapult or or initiate healing for people outside of myself, for my community, for my friends, um, for people who look like me, for people who have, you know, shared identities, um, uh, healing in different ways, you know, through conversation, through seeing beautiful images of ourselves, um, you know, believing that we can, believing that we're enough, um, just affirming people, um, you know. I was, I'm smiling because I just thought of a young lady this that I met this morning and she just was walking around. She was a dark skinned, you know, kind of plus size young lady. And she was like, I look good. And I was like, yes, you do. And like mm-hmm. just having the opportunity to, you know, because of my own growth, affirm a young woman who's able to do something that I wasn't able to do at her age, which is affirm myself, you know, mm-hmm. and, I mean, and that is beautiful because I still get so much healing and growth from all people, from little kids to teenagers to elders to the in-between folks, you know. Um, you know, I try to learn from everybody and pick up something from everybody. So I think that 
because of and that's my makeup. And so I think that the way that, you know, I think my intersectionalities will continue to be a challenge, but also continue to be beautiful, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'll continue to be unapologetic about being black and being a lesbian and being a feminist and being a plus size fat woman, you know, and because it's where I am and I should love myself and be respected where I am. Um, no matter anybody's like ideals and standards, and so you know, I, I, it'll it'll present some challenges, but I'm beautiful, and I affirm other people's intersectional beauty um, and intersectional like you know challenges um, because it teaches us. I think it does. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, and I think that in the future, you know, I'll continue to learn from my experiences and apply that to my work, whatever now, you my know, work is on the UN stage. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, you know, you, this, where, where you are now, when you talked to Dr. Watson, you made her think, and there were stories that she said, I have to capture these stories and I have to do that. If, down the road, you go into a woman-to-woman, and there's someone who where it's a different generation like you and Dr. Watson had been, and they came to them, what story of your generation do you want to make sure is preserved and told and known by those future young black feminists lesbian, queer, so that they can live unapologetically, that you don't want them to go back and go like, oh, I didn't know that. You know, what stories do you want to hold? Hmm. That's interesting. Um, What's her of my time? Mm -hmm. I think the story that I'm most interested in is centered around uh, it's around being unapologetic, like that there is space to be unapologetic. Um, I think that's really like the millennials thing right now, you know, like Black Youth Project 100 has the like unapologetically black t-shirts. We have Black Girl Magic all over the place, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Black Boy Joy. Um, there is space to be unapologetic and like it's okay to take up space. And we don't have to make ourselves small for this world, you know? Like, we don't have to be small. We can be as vivacious and, like, vibrant and beautiful and loud, you know? I think in Mm -hmm. so many ways this world has tried to shrink, you know, black folks, queer folks, trans folks, lesbians, bi folks, you know, tried to shrink us. And I, you know... I think it's okay to bust out, mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. be, you know, and, and, you know, I still hold, like, you know, I still have values. I still have, like, all of these things, but, like, it's okay to and to be yourself, um, and, and it's okay to be unapologetic about it. And I think that's, you know, like, you'll have your challenges, like, you know, I, I 
still question sometimes, like, am I being unapologetic today? You know, um, mm-hmm. am I allowing someone to, like, silence me today? Um, and I think it's a constant checking in, like, you know, like anything, like any healing, like any growth, you know, you have moments where you have to check back in. And, you know, and that's fine because maybe you're finding a new growing edge. And I've definitely, like, found growing spaces in my, like, being out and being unapologetic and, like, and found different ways to express myself in ways that I still feel unapologetic, whether that's head wraps or whether that's blue eyeshadow, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. However I want to express myself, um, you know, where I can still make the moves that I want to make. No, I, I love that because, I mean, it's sort of like you have what I like about unapologetic. It's like particularly from the perspective of being uh, a black lesbian, it's like, you know what, you're not wearing, you say, I'm not going to wear the angry black woman. I'm not going to play where that, oh, she's just acting out. You're being you. You're living your life unapologetically. I think that that's, that's it, you know. All of those things that, that, like you said, that made us stay small. Oh, I don't want to say what's on my mind because I'm going to be angry or I'm just going to be acting out. Or you're, No, you're, you know, it's like you're bringing it. And I think that that's what's really good. Well, we're coming to the end. I noticed that you've recently become a homeowner. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, so you, I mean and that's I think that's great, you know, although, you know, I do you do you feel like you're giving up your footloose and fancy free youth by by and putting down roots? <laughs> <laughs> by by adulting? Um Yeah, yeah, I know. know. <laughs> no, I you know, I've wanted this. I I think you know, I'm I'm young, but I'll be 30 this year. Um, and my views on home ownership, like, you have to have somewhere to live either way it goes, right? And so my theory is I might as well have it be mine than making somebody else rich, somebody who potentially is not investing in this city, who potentially is not – you know, putting down roots, especially depending on where you stay. You know, a lot of the the leasing companies or management companies, like I stayed in the building, the management company was in Bath, Michigan. Don't even know where that is. So, <laughs> like, I am making someone far away from Detroit um, that has no real investment. They have real estate investment, but they have no skin in the game in Detroit. Um, rich. <laughs> and, and you know, me and everybody else in the building, and it's okay, whoever wants to rent, like, I think it's wherever you are. But my theory is, like, you have to live somewhere, and I'd rather own it um, and put my roots down so that I can do the work that I'm doing for work in my own neighborhood, you know, mm-hmm. and, and work with my neighbors and build up the blocks, you know, build up the neighborhood block by block, you know. Mm-hmm have events, have, you know, uh, street fairs in our neighborhood and things like that and not have to go uh, 
go away to get the things that we want and the things that we need in our neighborhoods. I don't think we should have to move in order to experience a good neighborhood. And so, I, I mean, it's a, it's a change. It's a shift, yes. Um, it's a new responsibility, yes. But I'm prepared for it. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I have plenty of people to talk to about what it means to be a homeowner, you know, what to expect. So I have plenty of people who are willing to teach me things, um, you know, and I will, I'm sore now from doing work on the house. So, <laughs> uh-huh. and, but it's good. It feels good because I know it's mine or it will be mine. They, you know, I'm paying them back. But, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. but yeah, well, it's good. It gives a whole new meaning, though, too. When you talk about in our backyard, it's in your backyard. That's right. You know, it's in my front yard. All right, all right. <laughs> so, so I know I heard you talk about you're going to start um, photography, your own business. Um, what else is on the horizon for you? Well, launching my business, of course, and trying to – take that, make that global. Um, And, I mean, in a few years, I'm not quite ready yet. I'll definitely be um, moving towards getting my Ph.D. So I'm I'm not ready yet, but I put it into the universe. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know that I'm moving in that direction. Um, But, yeah, those are the big things, and, my home and building my home and planting lavender next year. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And just getting excited about neighborhood stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that you will keep me posted on as you move forward with your photography and anything else that you're doing. And we will be happy to, to share it with our listeners. And I'll probably have to have you back on because we, you already brought up something about schools and, you know, um, that's something that we're just going to have to look at because part of having strong, healthy communities is we have to have schools for our oh, kids. Yes. Yeah, we have to do that. Well, Rihanna, I want to thank you for joining me tonight. Um, is there anything about IOB you want to share with us or what's the website? If people want to, can they reach out to you and to find out yeah. what the process is? Definitely, definitely. So, yeah, if you want to check out IOB, it's www.iob, that's I-O-B-Y dot org. Um, you can check out our website, check out some projects that are happening on the Detroit page. Um, if you want to contact me, you can email me at Rihanna, R-H-I-A-N-N-O-N, at IOB dot org, that's I-O-B-Y again, uh, or Give me a phone call, 313-960-4838. Um, well, lady, I'm going to let you get back to your house. Uh, again, I want to thank you for being with me. Um, thank you. Um, it's been an honor watching you blossom. I mean, you know, because yeah, you've always you. been grown. You've always been grown. You just blossomed <laughs> and you get bigger and bolder and more unapologetic each and every year. And you are inspiring. So thank you for all you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for always being supportive. Okay, love. Well, I will talk to you real soon. 
Okay. Have a good evening. Well, we've come to the end of tonight's collection uh, by Michelle Brown with our guest, Rihanna Chester. She gave her email and phone number at IOB. Um, watch for her photography. She's really great. I want to again thank her for being our guest, and I want to thank you, our listening audience. You can listen to the show each week by following Collections by Michelle Brown on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitchers, or SoundCloud. That's all for tonight. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you, and good night.